The Psalms teach us the words of God, right? We talked about it being the vocabulary. You're supposed to be sucking on those. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. And I got about 20 minutes before you hit the sugar crash. So uh, the Psalms teach us how to say thank you and please and I'm sorry. We learn the vocabulary of God. We are born without the innate ability to communicate with words. We have to grow in that. We have to hear the words and then hear the heart of God and the Psalms teach us to do that. And God gives us the Psalms to do that. We've talked about this several times now. That this reason we do the summer in the Psalms is to learn the vocabulary of God. In Psalm 19, we learn the language of God in a different way. Instead of learning how to speak, we actually learn how to hear. It is a psalm that assumes that he is speaking, actually declares that he is speaking in several different ways. And we learn to tune our ears to what he says to, to stop and listen. In particular in this psalm, it is to listen to his works of creation and his word. Some of you know this, but I've been going to a spiritual director lately um, who's uh, 80 years old. Uh, she's my Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, who's been helping me out. And we sometimes are in the middle of these conversations, and, um, and, 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 and I'm thinking we have like this great insight going about something, and she just stops us right in the middle of it and says, I think we should just sit in silence for a while. I'm like, really? Because I thought I was gaining some really in- good insight here, and uh, I wanted to learn from more of your wisdom. And she goes, no, no, let's just Let's just stop making sure we're not working really hard to make this time something that doesn't need to be. Can we yield? Can we offer ourselves to the Holy Spirit in this season? You could imagine how much I love that. In the middle of a great conversation, just to meditate on his love for us and the fact that he would care for us. I absolutely love it. I hate it. I love it. Just to stop and listen. So we dive into the hive of Psalm 19 to listen to this psalm. C.S. Lewis calls this psalm, he says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. That's high praise from a double Oxford don, you know. Starts with his works. One, four through A. Consider memorizing these, putting these to memory. Actually, I have to read it differently now because it's a different version that I memorized it in, but the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day or day after day, it pours out speech and night after night, it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world universal, cross-cultural, transnational, cosmological, multi-generational, utterly unmistakable, unrelentingly perpetual, polylingual, inescapable communication from God. Every sunset, every sunrise, every rainbow, every storm cloud, every ordinary day, every mountaintop, every valley, every nook and cranny of the extraordinary or the mundane, all of it is communicating to us by God. 
And it's declaring two things to us. First, that there is a God who is powerful and glorious. And second, that he delights in beauty and creativity. And we get to experience and delight in that. Even in the language of the psalm, there's such creativity in it. The psalmist uses the sun to expose its incredible power of the word that comes forth in nature and the beauty of it. In the heavens, or the skies, in the heavens, God has sent, has set a tent for the sun. What an image, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man who runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing that is hidden from its heat. Can I get an amen last few days on that? <clears throat> And I'm stuck here, and I just want to, like, show you pictures for, like, the next 10 minutes. But I want you to do some of that work. I want you to experience some of that glory. The planets. It's such an amazing thing. If the Milky Way galaxy were the size of North America, so the Milky Way galaxy... This you know I don't know other than by reading about it. You know that. I, don't, you know, I didn't, wasn't educated in any of this stuff. And you took our nine planets of the solar system. Yes, nine. I'm a big-time Pluto fan. I, we're not, I'm not going back on Pluto. That's right. That's right. Anyway, if our galaxy was the size of North America, our nine planets and sun would fit in a coffee cup. The heavens declare his glory. Day after day, they pour forth speech. But this is not to get you to get facts, you know. I want you to look up and see the heavens. I want you to borrow the VBS slogan and wonder and, and worship. I want you to recognize those facts. I, want you to ex- I don't want you to recognize the facts of that. I want you to experience the glory and hear the sounds of the words of God's work coming towards us. There's this great development in in the Sherlock Holmes series, in the Adventure of the Naval Treaty, which is one of the later ones, Holmes is, is found studying a rose, and Watson says this. He walked past the couch to an open window and held up the drooping stalk of a moss rose, looking down at the dainty blend of crimson and green. It was a new phase of his character for me. Sherlock says, There is nothing in which deduction is so necessary as religion leaning back against, his, against the shutters. He says then, our highest assurance of the goodness of providence seems to me to rest in flowers. All other things, our powers, our desires, our food, they're really necessary for our existence in the first instance. But this rose is just extra. Its smell and its color are an embellishment of life, not a condition of it. It is only goodness which gives extras. And so again, I think we have much to hope from flowers. Remember when we held flowers a couple weeks ago? Or maybe because it's to be experienced and not just deduced, Clara Null tells the story. She's a grandma and she's one moonlit night with her granddaughter And they went for a walk, and the stars were super magnificent. And Grandma was telling Granddaughter about constellations and individual stars. And she goes, Grandma, 
if the bottom side of heaven looks like this, I wonder what the other side of heaven looks like. It's glorious because she's actually experiencing the way it's supposed to be experienced and not as a naturalist alone. We mean more than just nature. Nature is not a framed painting. It's an experiential art. It's interactive and generative. It's immersion art. It's participatory art. Flankward Lorite, the incredible eye of beauty and nature, missed it all because he says, I believe in God and I spell it N-A-T-U-R-E. I'm not going to tell you the name of this painting I'm going to give you. It's a hat tip to Jamie, James K. Smith on this one. It's, um, I'm going to give it to you, and it's actually, um, I had to cover it because it has unclothed people on it, and I didn't want you to have to send me emails. So, and I feel stuck on this. We have a censored there, there. That's good. Good job on the censored act. That was pretty strong. Um, it's from an artist named El Greco, who was not famous at his time or even much afterward. He wrote, he, he painted during the Reformation in Toledo, Spain, not Ohio. The height of the Reformation, he was called El Greco because he was Greek. His um, um, name was Dominicus Theotokopoulos hmm? or something, Theotokopoulos, never mind. Um, actually, no Greek, I just can't pronounce that word. He painted this at the end of his life He wasn't, this painting wasn't um, kind of seen or known until the prime minister of Spain in 1880 got it and then restored it. But when he got famous, when El Greco got famous, was actually after World War I, when the Cubists got a hold of him, people like Picasso and others, and they were totally impressed by him. Because as you can see, the way he does stuff and the elongated figures and the kind of dramatic uh, realities is very different than kind of high classical Renaissance art, which is what his time would have been. Very, very different. Picasso said he was the original cubist. Picasso's, um, I don't know how to say it in French, like Demoiselle d'Avignon, the brothel women of, of Avignon, is based on this. Um, it's an amazing piece in its own right. But that's about the size, a little bit bigger than a person, like seven feet, six feet wide. Until 1908, this painting was called Profane Love. Then an art historian, after World War and people started reading more about Greco, uh, Greco and um, a Bible reader and a heart historian, realized that's not what this is at all. This is actually taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 6, 9 through 11, where the souls of the persecuted martyrs are crying out for justice, and that little baby up there is giving them their white robes. Is giving them their white robes. And from that point on, and so the ecstatic figure, St. John, who's dominating the canvas there, the, behind that is those unclothed little uh, people who are in this kind of chaotic emotion until they get their robes. And then from that point on, it was either called the vision of St. John or called opening of the fifth seal. What they realized is that Scripture properly captioned the beauty of the art. That Scripture actually gave the meaning to the beauty that was. In fact, this is the craziest part about it. It went but people back into history of this painting and that realized that the, when that prime minister actually got a hold of the painting, 
there was some part of it that had to be renovated, renovated. They hacked off six feet of that painting above it. And so you literally have framed out the divine. And all you can see is nature. And so the ecstatic thing isn't even giddiness over, over the fact that people are getting the rose. It's actually worship to the living God who has brought these martyrs through. Six feet of it gone to be restored. When we don't have scripture for nature, we cut the frame. The arrows don't point high enough. We're not lifted high enough beyond the frame. And that's why this psalm, in an amazing, almost modernistic way, completely flips from his works to his word like that with no break. Modern poets are like, I can't believe they did this. No transition. Unbelievable. And so, the rightly ordered assessment of those works don't come from the artwork itself, but something else. So there is order and beauty and creation. There's plenty of sense of, of the fact that it was created. But outside the frame of creation, God must speak back in to his handiwork. And so he does. That's what verse 7, or yeah, verse 7 through 11 are. With no transition, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. David is writing here, and he's talking about Scripture in, in the Word, and he's, he uses the law of the Lord. He uses precepts of the Lord, commandment of the Lord, our experience of the fear or respect of the Lord, testimony of the Lord, and rules of the Lord, all in a kind of synonym kind of way, a phrase that relates and overlaps with one another. And they're pretty interchangeable, and they're captioning the works of God with the Word of God. You see, friends, as beautiful and wonderful as creation and as majestic and revelatory are his creative works, creation cannot tell you God's name. That has to be revealed. And in this case, a self-revelation. Hello, I am Yahweh. <laughs> and that's how it happened. This is Jesus, the one who created all these things. It can't tell you that in the fullest time, this God who loved us, out of his love, sent his son to become part of that very created order. Not to condemn it, but to rescue it. Only scripture reveals the motivation of sending his son was to have with us eternal life. Only the scripture can tell you that Jesus is not a work of God, but he is God himself, the word made flesh. He is the revelation of God. And as simple as it sounds, if you want to know anything about the father, you're supposed to just look at Jesus as he's revealed in his word. You want to know how the Father responds to things? Look at the Son as he's revealed in his word. And that's the other deal. Y'all, we see Jesus clothed in the scriptures. That's where we see him. 
but it's not about learning Jesus' stats. The Bible is not the back of a baseball card. The Bible is the word, like his works, it's talking to us so that it will be experiential. It's a participatory word. Look at the, um, look at the response to the word in this psalm. There's a reviving of the soul, a making wise the simple, a rejoicing in the heart, an enlightening of the eyes, and an enduring forever. That's not data on the back of a card. In fact, it's just as experiential as creation as well. It's learning the language of God by immersion. It's active. Our life in Scripture is alive. Oh, the times that we need to tell of each other, to remind each other that that time when I, when I, when I was coming across Scripture, there was a clear word from another that, that was a boon to my soul when I needed it most. That time when someone brought the Scripture to bear to me and my lying and my hiding and my, and my disobedience and running was exposed and it was, a, it was a faithful wound. It was a kindness to be reminded how desperately I needed Jesus and that I could be called back to him. Those words of God that have done their, their wonderful disruption and their wonderful rebuilding. Tell those stories to each other this week. How the Lord used his word as an immersion into him. More to be desired than gold. Think about that. Gold, y'all. Could we jump into David's mind and heart and beg the Spirit to transform our wanters and desires that we would want the word more than money. I ain't there, y'all. I want to be most times. I certainly want to be because I know of the times that I've been told and experienced how rich and beautiful the word was. And so you hear this language about moreover by them as your servant warned and, and keeping them as great reward. That's not a pressure statement. That's another delight. To be well warned is a beautiful thing. It's an act of love. Keeping them is a great reward, not like a meritorious act, but like there's a great um, result. Can I get an amen to that? How many times have you thought you knew better than God and then back around it came and you're like, oh yeah, scripture says that, I should have done that in the first place. Come on now. I have worn myself out going my own way. Knowing I'm better, I got it, just this one time. Spirit, this is going to need some nuance, and I'm here to bring it to you. So what? He's speaking all the time. He turned our hearts to listen well. There's something that happens when we recognize both in his works and the word. There's something that happens to us when we hear and slow down and stop and are silent enough to hear. That some of the things we hear are hard. Things we don't necessarily want to hear. Listen to the kind of humility that Psalm 19 now does another drastic break. Starting in 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Things I don't even know. Would you, would you make me innocent of even things I don't even know I'm messing up on? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, thinking I'm too good. Not, it's not going to affect me. I can, I can handle that. 
Let not that stuff, that sin, have dominion over me. Don't let it reign over me. Then I'll be blameless and innocent of any great transgression. Let me tell you, this dude knew what great transgression was. He, he got the top ten done in about a week. All of them, murder, adultery, he, he got it all. And then he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. I could see him writing this poem. And he's writing, he said, would you even let this, this thing that I'm doing right now be acceptable to you? Oh Lord, and I love this ending. My rock, natural, my redeemer, supernatural. My rock, revealed in creation, and my redeemer, revealed in his word. That's how the poem ends. That's why C.S. Lewis said this poem is hot. That's the translation from the British. Um, <laughs> y'all, one of the great realities of listening to God, both in nature and his word, is simply the utter clarity about how much we need him. How little we have lived up to the calling. How beautifully and how humbly we can approach him, and then boldly because it reveals that he loves us and wants us to come to him. We sin in our, our, and, and we're we, in our weakness, in our powerlessness. We begin to see his beauty and we long for, for that righteousness to be given to us. And it is through the Son. And, and then he transforms our hearts so that we want to be righteous. We want to be innocent of any great transgression. We want to be blameless. We are both declared it and also not fully it yet. And yet we long for it to be. Because we know what arrogant self-rule is. But we also know the goodness and beauty and faithfulness and righteousness of God, the bounty of his mercy, the beauty of his works and his word. And that is to be existential, experiential, lived in. We have been purveyors of rebellion against the very one who's loved us to death. And he has invited us, his once enemies, to be his friends. This is this amazing reality of the Lord who is our rock and the Lord who is our redeemer.